Good morning. We are talking with Dr. Thomas Davison. Thank you for coming on my secret obsession. I was amazed as I read a quick history of your life as a writer. Your work has been published over 60 times in literary magazines and journals. And The Boy with Strange Eyes was voted the number one best read across all genres by the voters, winning the championship for the fall 2023 Kindle Vela Writers Tournament. You have your doctorate in business administration and management. You're a lifelong learner and teacher. You now work with men in the prison system as a teacher. And before we get to listening to um, the first three chapters of The Boy with Strange Eyes, would you um, be able to share something about yourself? Good morning, and thank you for inviting me, Karen. I, I really appreciate that. Oh, I'm glad you came on. People I think I like to hear the most about is uh, what I've been doing lately. Uh, I retired as a formal teacher, professor, a lot of local community colleges here in Ohio. I couldn't take it being retired, to be honest with you. So I took the first available teaching job. I did an interview, and uh, they said, you're hired. I said, great. And the lady looked at me, and she said, oh, by the way, it's teaching inside the state prisons. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, with incarcerated. My wife wasn't real happy about the idea, but the more I thought about it, I thought, well, they were definitely desperate for, for teachers. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went in and did it. I got to tell you, it's been a very rewarding experience. Uh, Karen's probably the most rewarding teaching job I've ever held. The uh, students on the uh, inside, the incarcerated students, are so grateful just to have anybody willing to come in and teach them. Uh, mm-hmm. And it does represent a second chance for many of them. I'd say, over 75% of them are having to study for four to five years inside the prisons just to get their GED uh, mm-hmm. before they can start thinking about something. And uh, the vast majority of them, uh, it's the first person in their family uh, to go to higher education, to attend a college, to take college courses. It's quite a big deal, and it does. It makes a difference in front of the parole board. It makes a difference uh, that they're showing that kind of an initiative to want to turn their lives around. So probably, well, heck, I'll be honest with you. I'd probably do it for free. Well, I think it's amazing because I've thought before, you know, because people go into prison and I might be wrong, but there's a lot of downtime in a sense of there's not a whole lot going on. And I've always kind of thought, I wonder if they ended up, if they could put like a school situation in so that they know where they're going to be and that they are learning so that when they do get out of prison, they have a hope of what are they going to do now? Because you're hoping that they won't go back to committing crimes so they're right. going to need a way to support themselves. And so it's nice to hear that that's, in a sense, is going on, that people are getting the chance to to become educated and get their GEDs. Yeah, that's a couple of really valid points. The first one about uh, recidivism and going back. Uh, if they enter our program, there's a 48% less chance they're going to recidivize. And right. so as far as I'm concerned, that's worth every dollar. It's so expensive just a day-to-day to keep and house and feed a prisoner. It's a negative on our on a lot of our political systems is that we're reactive instead of proactive. Instead of spending the money up front to keep these uh, at-risk youths from going into the prison system to begin with yeah. and costing you and I and all the taxpayers all this money, um, and, and, and quite frankly, a lot of going there, it, it, it hardens when they come out worse, not better. Right. There's no rehabilitative piece to it, at least that, I, that I've run into, and I've spent eight years in there. And the other point that you had made was the fact that they have a lot of time alone, which yeah. is actually uh, where I come in because it forces you to sit there and think about your life and the mistakes you've made when you're sitting in a little you know, eight by eight cell mm-hmm. and you're in there for many hours of the day. You've got a, not a whole lot to do. You're either going to read if you can't read or mm-hmm. you're going to think a lot. 
uh, an I spent before teaching inside. I spent a lot of time with that at risk youth. I, mm-hmm. did, I was a trainer in the army with the young soldiers, and so and and Boy Scouts with my grandchild son, or my son was an Eagle Scout. I all just spent a lot of time working with the young men. Um, I'm used to going into a room full of a lot of men with a testosterone in the air and the alpha dance being played. And, right. And you know, but but being able to go in there and uh, uh, work with them, I wish I could get some statistics. But just speaking from uh, my personal viewpoint. Probably eighty or ninety percent of them have no male role model in their lives, mm. yeah. And so, and so they don't know what good behavior to model, and they've not had anybody be an example for them. And many times, I'll catch them doing some things, and I'll just be chewing them out, and I'll end up like, oh, "I'm sorry, I didn't know that." You know, I mean, one quick example would be a, a, a female worker might be walking by, and they'll start whistling and catcalling. I'll chew them out for it, and they'll say, "Well, we thought that was just how you show somebody that you thought they were pretty." Like they didn't realize that it was a, a negative thing, and that, that mm-hmm. the, the person they were giving that to might be offended by it. And, right. And so, just little things like that. It's a very observable point there. I think that downtime, the alone time, though, is good because uh, mm-hmm. I never had a phone call from any of my incarcerated students, uh, moms and dads complaining that I gave them an F, you know, um, mm-hmm. as long as I'm uh, more entertaining than whatever's on TV that night, I usually can have perfect attendance. Yeah. So they do it in the evening. Uh, I have some evening classes and some uh, afternoon classes. And, uh, okay. Trying to get in between the meals, uh, right. eating meals and having visitors are about the two most important things that are present. It's yeah. Sure it's not like Hollywood. That's for sure. Um, and it's, it's something that I, I only know about it through what I've seen on television, you know, and I think that's probably yeah. true for a lot of people. So, you know, it's interesting hearing your point of view and, and I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that they are there and, and some of them really want to learn, you know, that they, they do want to turn their life around. That's, that's very encouraging to know that hopefully when they get out, that they can have something to, to support themselves with. I was a teacher for 10 years and, and then I subbed for a little bit after my girls were born when they went to like middle school. You're right. I can think of one class and they're learning challenged. And, you know, the, the kid was like in fifth grade and still reading kindergarten level books. Right. And, you know, something needs to be done to help these kids because they really almost don't have any chance, Yeah. you know, to help themselves if they aren't able to, to do these things, you know, I think that makes it a lot harder for kids and it's overwhelming and defeating. And there are some solid statistics on this one, but uh, over 70% of them, you know, what they call level two, which is uh, fourth or fifth grade reading level, fourth or fifth grade uh, reading comprehension. And, and that's yeah. the average. It's a challenge, but it's very rewarding. It's a great segue because I originally wrote the book that we're going to be talking about, The Boy With Strange Eyes, as a tool to work with at-risk youth. In each chapter, you'll see a series of questions because the intent of that was to use this as a tool uh, because the people, when you're working with that risk youth, it's really hard. There's not a whole lot of material they give you to work with. Most of the uh, inner city urban children that I work with, it's uh, a situation where uh, bias, prejudice, discrimination are real day-to-day words, uh, something they have to live with. And there's not a lot of material that you can use with somebody uh, to Mm -hmm. get their so I had actually developed this as that tool. Once I, then once I got it out there and the readers started reading it on Bella, 
uh, you know, my number one uh, fans and people who end up reading the book were uh, uh, homeschooling moms. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. It was a book that talked about things like the importance of character, the importance of morality, the importance of having your own moral compass uh, right. so you don't end up in someplace like a prison. Uh, and, right. and the importance of education itself and, and why, you know, knowledge is power. And uh, to, to achieve knowledge is it opens up a whole new potential for life for, for so many people. So I set it down with a very narrow focus thinking, well, I might get 10 people to read this thing because it's not, that's, you know, that was my initial target audience. Then it turned out the adults liked it more than the kids. Mm -hmm. And then the homeschool moms kind of uh, took over at one point and said, look, uh, this is just what I'm looking for for my kids to read. I want right. to read something, but I want it to have some kind of meaning behind it, or at least some sort of life lesson to be learned. Right. I, I thought it was beautiful because I did read the first three chapters. And, you know, I kept thinking as I was reading it, this is the type of book that I could see being taught in schools. Like, you know how they always read fourth or fifth grade yeah. books in the Uncle Bill Project? And I thought this is a book that could literally be used for that. And I only read the first three chapters and I thought it was beautiful. It does ask you, um, as the reader, you know, what about these things? You know, what about your morality? What, are things true just because people say they're true? I thought this is a book that should be in like the scholastic book <laughs> book orders for kids. It really see, is. Karen, Karen, I need to meet you because you are a very observant person. That really was the, the entire intent of the book was was to be used as, as such a tool. Uh, and and then of course I saw how narrow minded my approach was. And how I was down in the weeds, and I pulled myself back up to 50,000 feet and looked at it and said, you know, there's a lot more than just at-risk youth that could benefit from. Yeah. Uh, and and as, as, as parents and as teachers, it's, it's hard to talk to, 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 to anybody about subjects like, you know, personal morals and being held accountable and, and being able to, to say, okay, this is the framework from which I will make my decisions from this point forward. If I have a problem, if I have an issue, what does my basic moral framework and code tell me to do? Mm -hmm. Is honesty important to me? Is integrity important to me? Is being truthful important to me? And if these things are part of that framework, and whenever you run into a problem or you run into some, some friction in your life, you go back to that framework and you say, okay, being the kind of person I want to be, being the kind of man or woman I want to be or grow up to be as a, as a kid, then what should I do? It's kind of helpful because I think most of us, you know, we get into a situation like that, uh, we panic or we're not quite sure what to do. And so we either run away from it or we ignore it and hope it goes away. Mm -hmm. Whereas the whole tenet of the book is to say, you can't do that. And the answer isn't to go out on the street and look for a gang so that you can find a male role model in your life. And if you don't have family like Cooney and you're an orphan, that doesn't mean the first uh, you know, people you pick up with are somebody who are willing to uh, talk to you and accept you and recognize you. Uh, there might be a price tag associated with that. So it, it, it sort of teaches us about some of the basic stuff, I hope. That was mm -hmm. the intent. And I was very, very pleased to, to see it was well-received in, in the Vela tournament. Mm -hmm. uh, very yeah. surprised. I mean, this is a, a two-way street. I've, I've done wrong things in my life as well. I'm trying to seek a little bit of redemption by maybe uh, – giving a little payback and paying it forward a little bit by going inside. And uh, you know, if I profess to be a Christian man or a man who believes in redemption, then I need to look at these guys not as a problem, but as a potential for second chances. I created a not-for-profit called Entrepreneurial Services for Felons. 
and I've built a trust and 100% of everything I earn from all the books I write uh, go to, uh, to that trust. And what it does is it establishes businesses for these young men and young uh, women if they want to apply. The, and it starts new businesses for them, like anything from a hot dog cart uh, to their own food truck. We've got guys who come out and they become uh, dog trainers, you know, whatever it is. And what this does is it gives them, it gives them free services. Uh, it might change from something as simple as going up and get an interview from a bank loan officer. How, how do you handle that? What questions are you going to expect? You right. Know, to, how to file the paperwork, uh, you know, to, to, to file, uh, to be legal with the state and federal governments, whatever manner of business they have. And it's mm -hmm. been, it's really great that the book's selling well because, that uh, every time uh, I sell a book, I think, well, you know, that's uh, one more person who might have an opportunity to uh, turn their life around and do what they're looking for. And one thing I noticed um, that I liked about the book, and it goes with maybe students who are struggling or the prisoners, in the book, you're also seeing uh, his dad does not appreciate or does not value education, whereas yeah. his mother does. And so when I was reading that, I was thinking, okay, part of the lesson here is going to be just because other people don't see the benefit of education, don't let that stop you because it really is important and critical to your life um, to be able to make good decisions, to, to have an education in some sort of field or something so that you can take care of yourself. So I do see that um, in that book also. And if it's interesting to me, I, I feel like you wrote that and I feel like the people will hopefully pick up on that and, they can change themselves. There is well, redemption. Yeah, there is. And if we can make a if we can make a book that talks about uh, the adventures of a, a lonely little orphan boy in sixth uh, century AG, uh, AD Eastern culture, Japan, and, and, and that kind of an environment, and spice it up a little bit with uh, pre samurai warrior stuff that keeps their interest going, that's great. Uh, but but the main messages in the book, there are some trigger warnings. Um, uh, I talk very candidly about sexuality. I talk very candidly about physical abuse, uh, mm -hmm. child abuse, starvation, not having enough food to eat. Yeah. Uh, there are some very serious adult issues that you know some adults might uh, not want to back away from, but it's honest, it's real. It's what's happening in the world today to a lot of these youths, and mm -hmm. they can identify with it and recognize it. And quite frankly, they need some tools to deal with it and handle it because there is nobody talking to them about it. They have nobody to share this with and they don't know what to do. And so I'm not trying to say this book's the be all catch all, but at least it tells them, hey, you know, speak to somebody you trust. This isn't right. It shouldn't be this way. If this is happening to you, speak out, do something, right. say something. Hopefully that uh, we, can, we can wrap that whole thing around a fun, quick read for kids or for youths that will also result in maybe, uh, uh, you know, opening their minds a little bit, like you said, toward the mm -hmm. value of, of an education. So maybe skipping school isn't all that cool. Maybe going to school might actually be good for me. What I'm, I'm thinking is that this book will allow children to see the value of education and the fact that it's not necessarily cool to skip school. Uh, mm -hmm. Education will open up more possibilities in my world. And if you don't have anybody telling you that, the only thing you're hearing is constantly, it's like school's a waste of time, school isn't good for you. And as you put, you might be a struggling student who can't keep up with reading or can't keep up with one of the basic foundational courses they need to proceed. And they don't see anybody showing any interest or care trying to help them. I mean, the only thing that's going to stop this uh, amount of incarceration we have in our country is if we can educate people 
and we can give people the knowledge and the tools they need to stay out of prison. I've spent, I don't know how many hours with young people who just, it's not that they're bad people. It's just that they lack any kind of knowledge or ability or someone to show them another way. Right. To them, there's one road, they're going down that road and that's it. So just live that life. And there's so many lives that get wasted, so much potential. Uh, there are people that may not be able to read or write. And you think of somebody as being almost functionally illiterate. That doesn't mean they're stupid. There's right. people that are, that are artists. There's people that are musicians. There's people in there that are highly intellectual people who are self-educated and not having an education or issue a problem that, that, that slows down their learning abilities doesn't mean they're not bright people. And it's amazing some of these workarounds, the way these people have have managed to move forward in their lives without what we would call a formal education. Uh, so there's a lot of very smart, talented people who have overcome the lack of education through some very inventive and creative ways. Uh, but there's also so much wasted potential. Right. Yeah. Well, it's wonderful talking to you and uh, hear about the hope that you are bringing to people. And um, thank you for using your time to help these people. And it would be nice if our country could figure out how to help them before they even get to prison and, you know, put more money into our education system or target these at-risk kids so that they don't end up being even more expensive in the sense of than prison and incarceration is even more expensive than just teaching them and the fir- before there's a problem. So well, what a great statement because I mean, it is, it's, it's cause and effect. I mean, here we are slapping band-aids on something after it's happened and spending a god-awful amount of money when we need to be focusing on, on, on keeping them out in the first place. It's, it's amazing sometimes our, our political system, we just, we're reactive. We're not very proactive about yeah. many problems at all. Mm-hmm. That That's true. Well, I want to thank you for coming on and speaking with us. You're very interesting. And I love that that book was fabulous. So um, for the listeners, Stick around because we are going to listen to the first three chapters of The Boy with Strange Eyes. So thank you once again, um, Dr. Tom Davison, for coming on here. I appreciate it. It was wonderful meeting you. And when you write your next book, you'll have to reach out to me and let me know because I would love to have you on again. Uh, Karen, thank you so much. And guess what that book is going to be? Oh. It's called Different Prisons, and it's true life stories, poetry and poems, and, and short stories about real-life incidences and everything that's happened to me. Uh, day-to-day for the past uh, eight years. And there's wow. some very interesting stuff in there, I, I think. And I've mm-hmm. gotten a lot of really good feedback from people say, wow, I didn't know this happens or you could do this. And and so I'm hoping that, that yeah, there might be the same audience that, uh, that likes this story might uh, very well uh, like it. It's actually a nonfiction story. Oh, awesome. Definitely. Yeah. yeah reach out when you're ready to um, start promoting that and I'll happily help you out with that. Um, thank you again. And that sounds fascinating, the poetry and uh, kind of getting a glimpse of of your reactions to it, it sounds like. Yeah. Well, thank you, Karen. I, I truly appreciate being on your show. And uh, thanks for all the uh, uh, probing and interesting open-ended questions that makes me look smarter than I am by being able to answer them. How's that? Oh, thank you. Well, you uh, have a great day, and we'll, we'll talk to you again in the future sometime. Cooney Leaves Home. Chapter 1. One who smiles rather than rages is always the stronger. There had been no fish again today, and the boy was exceedingly thin. Not the variety of thinness which is typical in any active twelve-year-old boy. 
Instead, it was the thinness that comes when a child has not eaten properly for many months. To observe the lad, he appeared near starvation. His grandfather had been a thriving, talented fisherman, and his father had also been a profitable fisherman. The youngster struggled every day to grow into any fisherman. The boat, the nets, and the harpoons needed to be shorter for his frame and undeveloped hands. He needed help to use the family tools of the fisherman's trade efficiently and adequately. The orphan boy had no one to share his thoughts with, and he had developed the odd habit of holding discussions with himself. Most of the folks in the kid's village had concluded, therefore it must be true, that grief and loneliness had driven the youngster mad, as he was often seen conducting deliberations alone. They would shake their heads sadly and comment upon how the deaths of his grandfather, mother, and father, in such a brief period, must have overwhelmed his young mind. It was deemed by most, therefore it becomes the truth, that the crazy little orphan boy imagined he was speaking with his dead mother. The sorrowful little lad had broken with reality because his circumstances were so heartbreaking that it was too much for him to bear. Cooney sat perched on a prow of a tiny fishing craft, speaking to the empty air surrounding him. Knowing the villagers thought he was mad, and perhaps he was, the beautiful voice first came to him on what he referred to as the last day. No one else had heard it, the soft whispering, other voice, except for him. The boy did not care. No one else from his village had seen the shape in the sea mist except for him. The boy did not care. No matter how much they pointed and whispered, the youngster would never give her up. She gave him expert advice, and she was always kind. He had named her on the first day she came to him. Her name was Mizuko, the water child. She seemed a form from the sea mist as a water nymph. Mizuko was small and could fit in the palm of his hand. She was a shimmering shape of a tiny dragon outlined in blues and greens, a three-dimensional sea dragon made of water and mist. I have the boat built by my grandfather, the boy declared proudly. Yes, but that is all you own in this world, said the helpful voice inside the boy's head, which often sounded like the voice of his dead mother. His mama had been the most intelligent person he had ever known. She never lied to him, and seemed to recognize his moods even before he did. If I saw the boat, I could eat? Yes, for a short time then you would have nothing. If something doesn't change, I will die. Yes, you will soon grow too weak to take the boat out, and you will perish. It's not fair. Life isn't fair, little one. But I tried. I tried so hard. You have worked hard your brief life. You should be proud. I feel so alone, Mazuko. It is true. You have been much alone since your mother died. The people of my village, my father, judge me without truly knowing me. And what did your mother teach you about the opinions of others? The youth sighed tiredly. What should I do, Mizuko? Remember the tales from the old man in the village? Also remember you have one good net remaining. The old man from the village, the storyteller, Kataribe, was the answer to his problems. Questions to ask yourself. If all the people of your village, town, or city acted as if you were invisible, how long would it be before you felt as if you no longer existed? 
If those people shared the same negative opinion about you, could you do anything to change their minds? Can someone be happy living utterly alone without anyone else? Do you know someone like Cooney, treated like an outsider? How much of a difference would it make if one person would reach out a hand of friendship? Catatribe, Chapter 2 What manner of a man do you wish to become? In better times, the boy and his parents and grandfather alongside him had gathered at the village community fire, and they would listen intently to the tales of the elder Kataribe. His mother had nicked him Kuni as a baby, and the name had stuck with the village inhabitants. Of particular interest to Kuni were the stories concerning the mysterious land to the east, an island. These narratives seemed astonishing to the impressionable young child. The accounts, told by Kataribe, mostly consumed of rumors, reported second and third hand, but they were fantastic nonetheless. Rumors of an island country to the far east, a mysterious place that village folks knew to be inhabited by strange people with an unusual language and curious writing. They also possessed advanced science and mathematics. This unknown eastern island studied the way of the warrior. It had been reported that they scripted things backward, and everyone agreed. Therefore, it must be true. Other tales told how they forged virtually indestructible swords, created through mystic eastern magic, possessed solely by the islanders. Other rumors concerned their eyes, which were shaped strangely and had a peculiar skin tone. The villagers had speculated that these easterners were not part of a humankind. Since most tiny village residents firmly believed it, it became the truth. The people of the far eastern isle were a remnant of an elder race of men. The lad's mother, Kaysan, had been a beautiful, kind, intelligent, and loving woman. His father had traveled inland to sell and trade the bounty of fish he and Kuni's grandfather had caught and specially cured, and on one of these trips to the rich interior farmlands, his parents had met. They instantly fell in love and married, despite the objections of the young girl's parents. She returned with her new husband to the coastal fishing village and had never seen or spoken to her family again. Yet, there had been much love and happiness in their tiny home, and it had been better times. Cooney's father and grandfather had often poked fun and made jokes about the stories of the eastern isle of legend. His educated mother taught the child to read and write, and only a handful of community members possessed that skill. His father never understood his only son's fascination and dedication to reading, and the stern man had been fond of saying, Reading and writing doesn't put food in your belly. Kassan had softly but firmly contradicted them. Since his mother had read many old books in her inland hometown, she was fully convinced that the stories were true. She smiled at her young son curiosity. She whispered to him that she knew exactly where the legend island was located a secret they could share as the lad giggled with excitement. Cooney's grandfather died two weeks after they listened to the Eastern Island tales. His old heart stopped beating. They never went together as a family to listen to the stories around the community fire again. Cooney was fidgeting in the stern of his small craft, avoiding seeing the only home he had ever known, the fishing village. When my mother was alive, things were so good, whined Cooney. Yes, but she has passed on now. She can no longer help, hold, or comfort you, as she did when you were a child. 
I will continue to ask you, Cooney, what manner of man do you wish to become? I am no longer a child, he answered hotly. I'm going to be a rich man. That is the manner of man I want to be, the richest man in the whole village. You have no time remaining to be a child. You know what you must do. If you want to live, Cooney's face looked angry as he responded hotly. I know. I know, Mizuko. I must sell the good net, then use the money to buy food and supplies. Yes, and then? Cooney's voice sounded defeated. I'll take the boat and sail to the far island in the east, the island that Katribe spoke of. Questions to ask yourself. Is seeking knowledge and an education something worth pursuing? Why do you think some people make fun of this pursuit? Is knowledge power? What does it mean to say, if everyone believes something, it becomes the truth? What if everyone is wrong? Can there be more than one truth? Departure, Chapter 3 A vision without action is a daydream. Action without vision is a nightmare. Cooney received a reasonable price for the net. The village elder was very successful. He owned three large vessels. The man he bartered with had been a good friend to his grandfather. They had grown up together as boys and fished together. The village elder was sympathetic to the young orphan. Coins were rare in their tiny fishing village, so they agreed on a reasonable price, only if the boy took most of his payment in supplies, plus a few coins. Cooney immediately took the worn coins he had so earnestly bargained for. The youth spent every single penny on more food, mostly rice and dried, spiced fish strips. The one exception he allowed himself was the luxury of buying two coppers worth of sweet rice cakes. Cooney then collected every water gourd he could find and trekked to the village springs. It took him two trips to return to his little craft for storage in his weakened condition. Initially, the boy could not eat over one or two bites of rice. Cooney's stomach made funny growling and groaning noises, making him nauseous. Afraid he might vomit some of his precious supplies, the child ate no more the first day. He broke his fast the following day and could eat almost half a small bowl of rice. Later that evening, on the second day, Cooney felt ravenous. He ate an entire bowl of rice and a strip of cured fish. The boy had to force himself to stop before devouring his whole food supply. Tomorrow. I will leave tomorrow, Cooney said out loud. Yes, tomorrow is good. There you may not be judged unfairly. The youngster was afraid he would not sleep, but the child slept the best he had in many months. When Cooney awoke the morning of his departure, he cried, Father! The boy could not help himself, not after the dream. The last daydream was about Cooney's last days fishing with his father. It was the final time the boy had ever fished with him. It was the final time he saw his father alive. That day, Cooney and his father had a big fight and he had never spoken to his father again. When Cooney allowed himself to think about that day, they had fought so heatedly. He recalled the harsh words they had spoken to each other, the hurtful, mean, impossible-to-take-back words. It had begun because Cooney wanted to talk honestly with his father. The boy referred to it as the last day, mainly because it had been the last day for many things. The last day of youth 
of innocence, of love, be truthful about his negative feelings of becoming a fisherman and his growing desire to become a scholar and a scribe. He felt it best not to mention his burning desire to become a warrior. Working as a scribe was enjoyable work and more acceptable to his father. Cooney rarely thought about the last day, and when he dreamed, the lad usually fantasized about the good times when his mother, Kassan, was still alive, learning to read as she taught him his letters side by side. The two had been inseparable. They were bonded tightly by their love of books and learning. His father and grandfather had called him a mama's boy. They repeatedly told him to grow up and quit being a sissy. Cooney hadn't cared what they thought or said to him because he had enjoyed his time with his mother. His mother had succumbed to the lung disease. His fond memories of her sustained him for the past 18 months. All the people of his village knew the disease had no cure. Once someone had it, they either lived or died independently, for there was no treatment. A tiny 18-month window of time, within which the boy had lost, what exactly? He had lost everything. His grandfather went first, his loving mother, and his stern father. He had lost his family and his home. During the dark times, he admitted how much more he had lost. He had lost the sense of himself because he had no one. Was a Cooney remaining? The villagers completely ignored him, and most people walked past him silently. No one spoke to him unless they were forced to. And it felt like he, Cooney, was not even there. With the death of his entire family, Cooney had somehow become invisible. None of the villagers could see him, so he was the same as non-existent, right? Everyone in the tiny town believed the child was responsible for his father's death, and if everyone thought something, then it became the truth. Cooney felt sad and sorry for himself as he began preparing for his departure, voyage, and grand adventure. His boat slipped quietly from the dock, while all in the village were still breaking their fast. The boy felt like he should cry or do something. No tears came. They never came anymore. The youngster had long ago decided you were only given a certain amount, or quantity of tears in a lifetime, and he had used up what he had been allotted. Young Cooney has had many causes to cry in his short life. Cooney has discovered that many people enjoy hurting others, even children, and making them cry. The boy has realized that there are many good people in the world. People go out of their way to make children laugh and feel joy. The lad understood how happiness would lose its importance. Its value was it not for sadness. Cooney's mother was fond of an old village proverb. One who smiles rather than rages is always the stronger. Kassan was a knowledgeable young woman. Author Notes and Questions to Ask Yourself at the beginning of this quest, Cooney is very young. In many ways, he seems immature. However, he possesses knowledge of the world and people's behavior that many experience and learn in adulthood. Do you know anyone who is an orphan? Perhaps you are an orphan, or someone whose circumstances have forced you to survive alone. Why are some members of our society treated as outcasts? Cooney refuses to cry. Do you think crying is a sign of weakness? Have you ever been starving? Compared to the movies, famished people can only consume a little food. It takes a period before they can eat regularly. Have you ever wondered why many people, including children, are hungry daily? 
Why can't we do a better job feeding those in need? I hope you enjoyed listening to The Boy with Strange Eyes by Dr. Tom Davison. You can find his books on Amazon. Thank you again for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.